low and get ready. Prepare your heart as we dive into the Word of God. This week's guest speaker at Beloved Church in Lena, Illinois, is about to lead you into a life-changing encounter with grace and truth. Jesus Christ has a divine destiny for those who are willing to open their hearts to receive His favor and blessing into their lives. Our prayer is that you will allow the presence of the Holy Spirit to radically display the Father's love for you. You are part of God's beloved family, and that means you are greatly loved. Enjoy the message. And so I want you guys to warmly and beloved like welcome uh, Dr. Ryan. Well, I am into the Word of God. So some guys are into golf, some guys are into axe throwing, cars, whatever. And my hobby, since I've been about this big, has been to be into the Old Testament. I was just fascinated by the stories of the Scripture and, you know, have really spent my whole life diving into that. And so before I get started, I want to say that as some guys, you know, go out and spend hours into whatever their hobby might be, my hobby is connected with the Word of God. So what I do is I love to listen to podcasts and watch YouTube channels and go visit different pastors and preachers at churches and things like that. And that's that's what I think is fun. That's what I think is enjoyable. And uh, I just want to put this out here. I am... I hear a lot of different messages, and there's a lot of preachers out there that might be good, that, that will entertain you for an hour or an hour and a half or something like that, and even speak from the Word of God. But very few actually know how to dive in and wrestle through Scripture as your pastor, Steve, does. And so, I love that about my brother. Um, I often, you know, well, if, if I just, oh, I might go to my church or be listening to these ones. And, you know, as I said, they might be really good, but I, I get to a point where I go, man, I just want to tear into the word of God. And when I get there, I usually look up your church's podcast on YouTube. Thank you, Mitchell, for making all that available to us, but it's awesome. Um, so, Steve and I have been connected at the hip now for quite a while. I mean, we, I, I say that we are blood brothers, and I mean that in more ways than you might know or care to know, but we just eat, think, and sleep very similarly to the drive that God has given us. So, we've been on a, a journey together, and today I want to invite all of you in the room to go on that journey. Now, before I get there, when he asked me to come and teach, I was a little hesitant. And I'm a little hesitant because I'm, I'm more at home. My ministry is really more to mentoring and discipleship groups. That's, that's where I really like to thrive. One-on-one, one-on-twelve, maybe up to 70 occasionally. And that's where I'm most at home. So, I get the idea that maybe we're a small group today, and that's probably my fault. So, um, God probably did that and said, Ryan, I'm going to make you right at home today. (laughs) But I love it when God, and, and I'm kind of joking, but I'm kind of not. Like, God does that stuff. 
on big ways and in little ways. I'm, I'm, I love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in the morning and I went to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and I grabbed the peanut butter and walked over to the table and put the full jar of peanut butter down and noticed, oh, there's already a jar of peanut butter on the table where I usually make peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Opened up the old jar of peanut butter and it's empty. And I said, oh, God knew it. So it's little... But it's sometimes those little details in life that are actually little signs from the holy areas that you're stayed connected. So, I want to talk about staying in connection this morning. And to do that, I want to invite you on a journey. So, Steve mentioned maybe starting a church in faraway places. And... I kind of want to invite you something like that. And Steve and I, I'm going to, as brothers, lead this trip with you together. So even better than that, my brother's just going to pick up the bill and pay for everything. We're good friends, I can say that, right Steve? So, we're going to go on this trip, and it's going to be like an all-expensive trip. Now, in our American thinking, we go, where do we want to go? Maybe Bora Bora, you know, Tahiti. Where's, where's this church you're working on? Honduras works. Let's go to Honduras. So we're going to pack everybody up into the jet or whatever. You don't have a jet, do you? All right, not yet. Um, and we're going to Honduras. So to do this... I just need, I don't know if you've ever been on a missions trip, but unity is important on missions trips. Unity is important within the church. Unity is important where one or two or three people are gathered. So we need unity. So here's what I'm asking. I want you to simply have faith and trust us on this trip. And I want you to be faithful in every little way along the way. Make sense? That's not asking too much, right? Now, sometimes things are going to get hard because you've never gone on a trip with me before. But when we go on vacation within my family, my wife says she needs a vacation after the vacation to recover. So that's kind of the way this trip is going to be. So we're going to go on this thing and I just want you to give me complete trust. So where are you at? Can we do this? Are you all on the, are, are you all on the jet to get to Honduras? Alright. Now, I'm also gonna ask that in every way that you not only give your absolute best to Steve and I, but this is, this is all things are actually rooted in our covenant to God here. So I'm not necessarily asking for your best, but I want you just to be your best all the time. Whatever you have to give, whatever you have to offer, there might even be things that you don't necessarily know you have or within you, and we're asking for those too. Make sense? You're still all on the jet. This is going to be like the best spiritual gift assessment ever. It's like, can you drive a car 200 miles an hour? Can you jump out of a jet without a parachute? Things like that. When times get hard, I want you to be allegiant to the trip and to us, but more so to the driving factor that's taking us on this journey together. Now, that sounds like a funny word to say, I want you to be allegiant to that. 
But think about what that means right now. There's a lot of different things in life that are vying for your allegiance, and sometimes we don't even get it. You know, we're walking through the supermarket, and there's these things that are asking for our obedience or our allegiance to Him, and sometimes we don't even know. So I'm just going to tell you, before we even start, I just want your head in the right place to be allegiant to the journey. Good? All right. Now... This is a tough one, and I want to say it's tougher for guys, but I'm not a girl, so I can't speak to the other side. So everybody, we have to put our pride aside, behind us, under us, and we have to respect each other and work together. Good? This is one that's really easy to say good, but it's actually really hard to put it to practice. So, put your pride beside you. Be committed to the group. And not only do we need commitment, but we need accountability at the same time. So, commitment and accountability, those two things are really hand in hand. It's really hard to be accountable if you don't have commitment, and it's hard to be committed if you don't have accountability. So, that's what we want. There's nothing that smashes a group dynamic faster than people that can't work together. Now, this is similar, but I need to ask you to cover each other. There's something about the culture that we live in within America that we're always trying to outdo the next person. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like we're always... And it it's really comes down to a meistic society and I'm trying to elevate myself to a better spot than the person next to me. And the Bible, the, the Jesus factor is backward of that cultural thinking of today. So I'm asking you that you encourage those around you another way and put yourself lower so that they might be honored. Go out of your way to put those around you. And the hardest one is it doesn't just stop with the people I like, like Pastor Steve or Pastor Bob. I like these two guys a lot. That's the easy one. What about you? I don't know you very well. But you know the harder one? What about the enemy? What about the guy you can't stand the most? What about the person that did something to you that you don't think you can ever forgive. And guess what Jesus says? Don't, don't only invite him to your table, but give him your cloak. Did you know what that meant in that time when he says, give him your cloak? Do you remember the story? Well, who was the prophet that had the cloak? We can be oral. You can answer these questions. Remember that? When he passes his cloak to somebody, what was he passing on? Everything that he had, all that was in, within him. Do you remember the coat of Joseph? You know, you remember that what, what was that was? He was in his seen place. You know why he had this colorful coat? Because his dad wanted to keep his eyes on him. That was prized possession. So when you're passing your your cloak to somebody in in spiritual cultural setting, that was giving everything that you had, all that you had been given to you, because the majority of the people that Jesus was speaking to when he said this had nothing except the coat on their back. It means something a little bit different when you think of it that way. So I want you to think about doing that. 
I want you to lead by example and mentor those beside you, but also you have to learn from the person that you least expected to learn from on this trip. Now, as you probably have figured out, my trip is a little bit of a metaphorical journey. But it sounds a lot like something that we're all on together right now, right? This is the description of what it means to walk together in the calling, in the footsteps, in the dust of the rabbi. Now today it's really easy to talk about these things. We do a lot of talking. In fact, we have some really in-depth great conversations. But the hard part is the action. Lord, I come to you of a free heart, mind, and soul. And Lord, communally, we call your Spirit on this place, Lord. Lord, you have done this for us. You have told us, you had promised us over and over that when we come into your presence, Lord, that you are here amongst us. Lord, when we call out to you, it's a symbol of obedience because we don't need to do that. You are here already. You have met us in this place. But Lord, it's our obedient heart coming to that place that we want, we desire more than anything to receive what you have given to us today. So Lord, that is my prayer. That our, our heart, our mind, and our soul might be captivated, might be renewed, and might be steady for where you will steer us by the gracious blood of your Son. Amen. The book of John says, walk as Christ walked. The, the Greek verb there is peripateo. And what's interesting is you all know that the Bible in the New Testament was written in Greek. Now what's interesting about that is hardly any of the biblical people alive at the time of the New Testament spoke Greek. In fact, it was kind of crazy because they actually didn't really like that language. They actually kind of pushed it away because, in a sense, that's what Rome, their captives, brought to them. And so, they kind of pushed it away, but that's what all the learned people of the day spoke and wrote in. And so, Jesus did that sometimes, but when it got put into a writing form. They thought it was going to stand the test of time better, so that's what they did. But everything kind of had a Hebrew way of understanding. Some have called the language of Hebrew God's language, and I don't know if that's true, because I actually believe that God gave all the languages. Linguistic people have researched this and said every single language in our world, is too complicated for somebody to have actually put together. How did they get here? Well, we know. But this verb, peripateo, is what's called a Hebrew idiom. So, in the Hebrew mindset, you kind of have this idea that when Jesus said something, even if he spoke in Greek, it was with a more Hebrew mindset because that's, what the culture of the Bible would have been thinking like. 
And so when he says this, it's this translation of words that are describing what walking means. So he's saying, walk as I walk. And later when John says this, he's saying, walk as Jesus walked. But both of them are using the same Hebrew idiom. So let me tell you what this means. In Hebrew, the word is halak. Now you might recognize this because it's one of the seven praise words in Hebrew. So there's six more with that. And it, and it means, it means itself to walk in its root form. But the idea was that as you walk, this wasn't just walking. This was actually your way of life. So let me explain that. So you, you have this worship word that means to walk with God. That's the form of worship that you're walking with. Um, and you might remember that because that's, in the Garden of Eden. Same word when the kind of Adam and Eve were walking with God. Enoch is used there. Noah is used there. We see this a lot, but, but you have this word halak, but then there's another word that's the same root, and that's yelak. And yelak means to go. And so you might think of like, what do we know about what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to go to the nations, right? So that's the thinking behind that. Now, from there, the other word is mahalak. Now, again, these are all just one or two words different because they, they have the same context, but they slightly mean something different. And so the other one, mahalak, means a journey. So when you put this all together... In essence, Jesus is saying he wants us to go, Yalak, on a journey, Mahalak, and that as we go communally, Halak, the way of life, it's going to be defined by the sense that we worship as we walk with God. And I love it that he meets us where we are and just asks for one little step at a time. That's what it means to walk with God. Now, a lot of people don't really know what it means to walk with God. We struggle with this. And part of the reason is, is because, again, in, in our culture, this doesn't really make sense. A lot of the Bible is hard to understand within our, can I just say, messed up culture that we live in? Kind of backwards to God culture that we live in? We're trying to define God in a culture that can't define that. And so... When I think about this, I, I think about we are trying to describe a lifestyle that in every way describes God being the center of everything, like Steve just preached. When he started, I thought, wait, I was supposed to preach today after you went, but I know you too well. It was a great message, by the way. So, so Steve is defining as he started, what it means to glorify God with all that we've been given because it's not ours. Now, in the Word of God, he says we're supposed to read Scripture, but, you know, there's so many people that I've been blessed in my life, and I think God greatly gifted me this, that I just happen to love Scripture. You know, and I, and I don't say that, you know in a better-than-you state. I mean, I just that's, that's my hobby. That's my passion. That's just what I'm into. And luckily, ever since I've been this tall, that's been what I'm into. Most people 
have not been wired that way. Now, it's unfortunate because perhaps if we would have grown up in a better Jesus context, we would have been wired that way. But the fact that we haven't grown up in this surrounded Jesus context, we've grown up in a mucked up, murky, sinful world surrounded by things that don't look anything like Jesus, we have a hard time filling every part of our life with Jesus. So, so my first challenge is, you hear this all the time, but do we really do it? I'm such, I'm, I'm an action guy, and I have such a hard time, be careful here, don't get me wrong, with people that work 40 to 50 hours a week, and they give God maybe not even an hour or two during the week. In my eternal thinking, I would say you'd be better off to take you and your family in a wagon-covered trailer, go out in the middle of the most remote place in Illinois where nobody cares that you're living, and just grow crops and live in a little wagon and read the Bible because your life would have a whole lot more time and intensity with God. Now, why don't we do that? Because that's not the American way. From the very beginning, we're not surrounded entirely by godly thinking. Now, I'm going to be clear. I don't think we need to do that. God's put us right here in Lena or wherever you come from with an intention for your life where you are. But as that intention, don't let it get swayed by the world. Don't let it get torn. If you find yourself not having the amount of time to invest in, in your Word of God thinking, in your Jesus world, in your wife, in your kids, if you can't take $400 in a weekend and go on a marriage conference, it's time to reevaluate. And I say that in total love. Now, one of the reasons I love Steve, I'm not political. And I don't really think Steve is actually political, but I love that he's made the Constitution available to anybody that wants it. I love that when the government said, you can't meet here on a Sunday morning, you can't worship Jesus the way the Bible tells you to worship Jesus, he says, I think we can, and he, he, he does it with probably some of your help. But the thing that I love about my brother Steve more than anything else is that when it comes down to it, he knows who he belongs to. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people dabble with the kingdom. They dabble with the king. They, they like the idea, and it's real popular. You hear country music singers all the time talking about this thing they've got going on with God, but it kind of sounds like a rodeo more than it does a relationship with God, right? Looks good on the outside, but what about the inside? Today when we talk about kings, I loved uh, Steve's talk about the Old Testament idea of the Magi, um, they were essentially kings. You know, people have wrestled with this concept and there are a lot of them and bodyguards and all that stuff. I learned something. I, I love that. Um, but when we think about 
kings, that's where most people go. Did you know that? Back to, back to the Magi, we three kings. That's what the normal person thinks about a king, is they go to the Magi. And, and so, unfortunately, it's probably not the right version of thinking of a king, but that's where they go to. It's associated with sovereign peoples, you know, worshiping, bowing down to them, things like that. America's kind of replaced that politically with this idea of a president and, you know, maybe NBA superstars and NFL and things like that. It's just, it's so contrary to the way that the Bible talks about thinking about King Jesus. So, I'm going to go through something here. A lot of times when we say we gave our life to God, it's this idea of kind of an altar call salvation, a, a momentary time of salvation. Now, I am actually a huge proponent of altar calls. I, I think that the altar in the Bible is very significant with a place where you meet God. So when we do these altar calls, you might actually have the wrong way of thinking. It's not so much that Pastor Steve or Pastor Bob wants to put one more check on the wall for somebody that came up and prayed a prayer of the four spiritual laws or something like that. It's that they have been met at the altar of God. It's that, it's that, that might be the first step, but it's actually not really about what happens in that moment. It's about what's going to happen in the journey after that moment. I like to say that we're going to see life in a new light. So I want you to consider what it really means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God this morning. That that whole figurative group of language that I described that journey, that in every way, shape, and form, our life emanates that kind of light living. And I'm going to kind of go through that a little bit. So in the Old Testament, God comes around and He establishes direct role in people's lives. That was called a theocracy. So He He starts that way, and it's like that with Adam and Eve, and it's like that with Abraham, as he says, I'm going to give you the nation, and I'm going to follow through on this. But then he starts his own nation with Israel, and the Bible describes that as his portion. And he takes Israel, and he says, I am going to be everything to you. I'm your government, I'm your God, I'm your king. Essentially, I want you to eat, sleep, and think God. I am your complete way of living, your complete way of life. Now, it's interesting, when Jesus comes, and later when John says this, what do they say? They reiterate that. We want you to walk all of these ways of worship completely in Jesus. Now, What's interesting in the Old Testament is that man doesn't really like this idea. So in Israel, they go to God and they say, Hey God, what about a king? Everybody else has a king. And wouldn't you be offended? Wouldn't you be like, Well, wait, I'm your king. Right? But what's crazy is that this is a relationship. Have you guys ever picked this up in the Old Testament? That this is like best friends talking and God 
gives them what they're asking for. Now, if I were God, I would have said, no way. Do you know what you're asking for? This is a downward spiral. You're going to crash and burn. I know what's best for you. But God says, I love you enough that I'm going to let you kind of walk this way a little bit. And I'm going to urge you to walk with me, but inevitably your choices are going to define your destiny. Now, there's a lot of evil going on out there today. I don't think anybody will argue with me on that point. It's everywhere. Now, at the cross, Jesus bound evil entities. We don't really have the whole understanding of that. So, I'm going to speak a different language. I'm going to speak Star Wars here for a minute. I was about this big when the first Star Wars movie came out, and it rocked my world. I mean, I was just blown away. And I'm, st- I'm still there. But what happens is the Star Wars movie comes in, Star Wars, the first one, and you're, you're entered into the middle of this crazy galaxy-wide battle, and you have no idea what's going on. And at first we just get the one movie, and then at the, by, the, by the end of the movie you go, oh, there must be another one. And then another one comes out, and another one, and another one, and I don't know how many there are now, 27 or something like that. But what's interesting is they tell the rest of the story that you didn't get when you watched the first movie. Now what a lot of people don't really get is that this story of the Bible that we have is a very small picture of probably the whole picture. So what we know is that there are these spiritual entities upstairs in the heavens and the dominions and God says, I'm going to make a plan for people to walk with me. And He creates this garden environment where people are going to help organize God's creation. That was actually what Adam and Eve did. If you study it, there's a study that they were actually the first priests and royal entities of the garden to help God rule over the creation that God made. That was the plan. That was it. Forever and ever and ever. It's interesting that they were eating of this tree of of life that they weren't ever supposed to wither. Did you ever pick that up? As long as they ate of the good tree, that they would be essentially immortal. It was a gift of life. Well, what happens is the evil forces that are still here today step into the story. And now, the entire Bible that we have, this just blows me away that people sometimes don't get this. The entire Bible, the entire story that we have, is God simply saying, we're going to get back on track. There's a way, there's a plan And I'm going to give you the Word of God, my very Word, me, Jesus, in the beginning was the Word. And that is the plan that one day you might walk with me again as I designed, free of all of these evil forces, together 
in a very much Eden-like place. But what's cool about the story is that as we hear this biblical story that we're part of, we're in there somewhere, we, we learn that our lives are only this big, even in the story, you know, put out to us, and that the story of the Bible actually might just be one little episode. You know what I think heaven is going to be? Watching the other 27 episodes of God's cosmic domain. And if you like Star Wars movie, that kind of sounds like heaven to me. I think there's a lot more out there than we necessarily know. I often hear people kind of talking about America as if it is their religion. Do you ever hear that? It's really interesting. You might consider this. America has a constitution. Now, before I start this, I just want to affirm, I, I am the epitome of an American. I, I, I love the country that we live in. I love mostly the freedom that we have for God in this country. But it's a love, and hate is a very strong word, but it fits here. It's a love-hate relationship. So consider this. America has a constitution that we all affirm. We like that constitution. We, we want to hold people accountable to that constitution, right? But some of us have to be careful about maybe holding that constitution too high sometimes. I don't know if you've ever seen the Lincoln Memorial, but did you know that it was built as a replica of the Temple of Zeus? Isn't that interesting? Did you know that the words behind it, behind Lincoln and the Lincoln Memorial, look at these words. In this temple, as in the hearts of the people for whom he saved the... Who's he? This sounds like a Bible verse, but it's not. Isn't that scary? Have you ever wondered about the hymns our nation sings to itself? Don't those sound like the same hymns of, of Jesus in the Bible, but we're, we're singing them to the nation? We have these sacred texts, sacred saints sometimes, temples, holy days that we observe. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when you put it in this context, this is starting to sound like a religion to me. That's hard to fight with, isn't it? So, I have to question this. Has nationalism within America become an idol? Is this God's country or is this somebody else's country? Now, this is controversial. Was this founded as God's country? I can argue this both ways. I can say, yes, it was founded as God's country. If you, if you study those who founded it, and if you read what they wanted to do and what they lived for, a lot of them were very godly people, and they were trying to be as instrumental as they could. As Steve said, are you going to take action or are you going to sit back and watch this? They were action makers. 
They stepped up and they wanted this country to be founded on biblical principles. And thank God they were there because some of the way our country was founded is founded on God. Unfortunately, not all of it. So now you have the other side of this fence. And I'm going to be playing both sides of the fence a little bit today. The other side of the fence would say there's nothing in our Constitution that says that our allegiance lies in God. It's not there. It doesn't exist in there. And you can even go back and say, when I study the people that came up with our Constitution and started America, they had no desire to start this as a godly country. There was a beautiful thing amongst those people called the remnant. The remnant were those that said, God has to run this country or we're going to be in trouble. But the great majority of those that were founding our country were far from that. They were bloodthirsty rebels, to put it quite frankly. So what do we do with that as Christians? That's for you to decide. Do you remember when the Israelites came into Canaan? Did you ever wonder why God said Canaan? I loved last week's message because Steve spoke life into some history lessons about all of this thing with life. And he told you a little bit about Canaan. So, Let's think bigger. Now, I'm a theologian, and one of the things that we're going to do today is talk about big questions of the faith. One of the, uh, one of the things that always amazes me is that people come to the faith, to an obedient allegiance to God, without necessarily thinking through everything or having all of the cards. Now, this is good and bad. This is really good because I am convinced, foremost, that when this happens, it's because the Holy Spirit prods truth within their heart, their mind, and their soul. And that is unarguable. How do you argue with that one? But at the same time, sometimes people come to this understanding of Jesus and And they're troubled. Their hearts, their souls, their minds, they're troubled because they're not sure if it really makes sense. Now the problem is, is that the way that they're trying to make sense of it is founded on their American way of thinking, which is not godly. So they're trying to make sense of it, of a corrupt thinking. And in a way, it's just never going to make sense unless the Holy Spirit touches them. But I'm also tired, the other side of the fence here, of those that are afraid to let the Bible stand for itself. Those that keep making excuses, like as if they need to defend God about some big secret that doesn't make sense within the pages of the Scripture. My friends, we never need to do that. So, there's this thing that happened in Canaan. And, and the question hap- comes up all the time. When, when people are considering Christianity, they go, how can you give your life 
to a God that allows such evil things to happen within our world. Do you hear that regularly? How, how can you be one of those? Has anybody ever gotten that before? How can you be one of those people that just goes along with that God thing? Now, the bigger question is, how is it that sometimes God doesn't just even go along with maybe the bloodshed or evil atrocities of the Old Testament, but sometimes He actually takes life in great forms? A lot of people are hung up on this, and a lot of times we don't know how to answer these tough questions of the Christian faith. Now, Canaan is interesting. The majority of these Bible verses that you read of these evil atrocities in the Old Testament, most of them are around Canaan. Now, when Canaan started... God's actually going to, you you get glimmers of this, He's not okay with what the Canaanites are doing. And this isn't just like a generation that He's not okay with it. It's about 400 years that He's not okay with it. And people often ask the question, why does God allow these evil things to happen over and over and over? Well, the story of the Canaanites being wiped out is a story where God just finally says, I'm done with it. I'm not going to allow this kind of evil to happen over and over and over. So then the problem is the same people that say, why does God allow this? Go, oh, can you believe God would just wipe out people like this? Let me tell you a little bit about the Canaanites. I'm going to get into them just a little bit. So, there's this term called Molech. Now, we actually don't really know what to do with the term Molech in the Bible. The way that it's written, it's not necessarily a person, but it could be a person, but it really describes something that took place in the Bible. And what it describes is child sacrifice. And so you have this, this God, and the Canaanites felt like they needed to offer sacrifices of children to this God. And so they had these idols all around Canaan and the idols kind of looked like fat little Buddhas and underneath them was an incinerator and then their hands would be out like this. And the people, in order to please the god Molech, would come and they would place their babies on these super hot hands. But this was a slow, tedious death. These practices are described in the Bible as against God, detestable to His eyes and utterly evil. Did you hear that? That's pretty strong words. So this is happening and God has a major problem with this and says, I'm going to take it out. Now, there's a couple times in the Bible where we get stories and we have to understand why we're getting the stories. So I'm going to explain to you these situations. There's a word theologically to describe them. It's called an archetype. Now, don't get hung up in the word. The word doesn't mean anything. But there are archetypes throughout the Bible and they're, they're people that really exist. So I'll give you an example of Abraham. Abram turned to Abraham. What we know of Abraham, the reason that we have the story is one that God chooses to use Abraham 
to be the father of all nations. Eventually, God is going to use, try to use Israel to go regather the nations like the Canaanites that are lost. That's his plan. And it looks like it's going to come to a miserable defeat when Israel goes into captivity because they're not faithful to the Lord. He lets that happen. But then he uses the faithful remnant, remember that word, to bring the seed of the Messiah. And that's the history story that we got a little bit last week with Steve. So even though Israel seems to fail God big time, God still is the way maker for all of eternity through his covenant promise. Wow. I love that. Let me get back to Abraham. I kind of got off track there for a second. So we have this Abraham person. And what do we know of Abraham? He's the person that has more faith than anybody else probably in the whole world. If there was another person that had more faith, then we would have the story of that person and not Abraham. And if there's another person with more faith, then God would have granted him to be the father of all nations. Are you guys following my thinking here? We have the story of Abraham because he is of utmost faith. So when we have a story of Abraham being asked to go sacrifice his son, and most of us read that story and we never hear it. Well, you do in churches like this. But outside of churches like this, Most churches never preach a story about that because they're afraid that people cannot reconcile the nature of God within that story. Now what you have to see, and I could preach for days just on that story, but we don't have time. I'll land that one for you to cover later. We have the story of Abraham, the person with the most faith. Now most of us read the story and we go, that's nuts. God's going to ask me to bring my son and sacrifice it in front of him. Give the thing that I hold dear more than any other thing in life. To give to God. Brutally with a knife as a sacrifice. We go, that's crazy. Well, one, within their culture, as we just heard, that was actually pretty normal. But two, let's not just discount it with that. This is the person with the utmost faith of anybody in history. If one person has the faith to sacrifice what means more to them than anything else in a way that quite frankly sounds nuts, it would be the person with the most faith in the Bible. Right? All of a sudden that doesn't sound so so crazy anymore. Now why do the Canaanites exist? Why do we have the story of Canaan? Would it have been easy for God just to say, you know, in the last 400 years, Canaan kind of took this spot that I wanted for you guys, but there's a little place off to the right, we can just do that. Remember the story he went over it to, Abraham Lot, remember what that was called, Sodom and Gomorrah? Walking away from that. That land was supposed to have been given to Abraham and all his descendants, but evil pervaded into godly, sacred space. And the evil goes in and wins the space. And what does God do? He says, I'm not going to put up with that. And he destroys it. How can a God of love destroy so many people like that? Now what's crazy is over... You guys ready for this? This is the hook. 
that you probably never knew. You guys have been sitting in church pews most of your life and you probably never got this. Sodom and Gomorrah, fast forward 400 years, guess, where, guess, guess what it's called? Canaan. Anybody ever figure that out? Canaan is Sodom and Gomorrah. Wow. So the evil that was put out once continued to be rampant in a mucked up world. Feel anything like today? So now God comes and He said, I thought I sent you a message once already. So He does it again. He sends Israel to wipe them out. Now, we struggle with a lot of things here because some of the language that they use, we don't necessarily understand. So one of the ones that sounds like this is... um, that men, women, and children are going to be annihilated. Anybody ever have a problem with that in Scripture? You really should. You're telling me that God's going to go in and annihilate men, women, and children in the Scripture. We got this great story that Steve told last week. We're going to circumcise these guys and we're going to kill them. Right? And there's some people kind of sitting back on. Boy, I I don't know if I want a God that sounds like this. That sounds harsh. That sounds mean, kind of. That sounds like a monster God. Now, I'm going to leave this with you. What I love about the Word of God is it's a mystery. It's a puzzle. I have been into the Word of God for way more hours than what the world says it takes to become a master at something. You guys know what that means? 10,000 hours, that's what they tell us, at whatever. Now, in all of my dealings, I have yet to wake up one morning and go, you know, I got it all. I did feel that way once. When I was 18 years old, I was going to Moody Bible Institute and I thought I was going to teach the professors that I knew everything there was to know. And four years ago, upon graduating from the Harvard of Bible College, I felt like I knew less about Scripture than I had ever known before. This is the part I love. This is the part that draws me in every single morning for hours and hours and hours. I can't wait till my alarm goes off at 5 o'clock before my kids wake up at 7 o'clock to just be enthralled with the mystery of what God has given me. Now, I'm I'm not going to leave you hanging quite that much with the wording of the Old Testament. So I'm going to give you something real quick here. This is a little bit of a squirrel to this message, but I don't want to leave you thinking that these are tough questions. So in the in terms of Canaan, I already told you about this problem that was going on, about all these babies being killed. Now we've got babies being killed all over the Old Testament. Again, you guys kind of talked about this a little bit last last week. This is what, in the Old Testament, when we read about these babies being killed in the Old Testament, this is what ignites God's fire. 
if he's going to get mad, if the creator of the universe, the sovereign, omniscient authority of everything is going to get angry, wrathful even, where are we going to see it? Right there. Right there. This is the archetype of evil in the Bible. Sodom and Gomorrah and Canaan. There is nothing more evil than this. If there was, we would have that story. You guys following my thinking here? So God says, what am I going to do with this situation? I'm going to annihilate them. Well, God, that doesn't sound very kind. That doesn't sound very loving. Well, there's a couple ways to reconcile this. One, we don't have this language today. Well, we kind of do. I'll get to it. But when it says complete annihilation, it actually doesn't necessarily mean that. Deuteronomy 7, it says, I want you to annihilate the Canaanites. But then the very next verse, it says, oh, and don't intermarry with them. You've probably never thought of that before. How is a people going to be totally annihilated, but then there's going to be somebody left over that you shouldn't marry? Well, that doesn't make sense. But the Bible always makes sense, so what does this mean? Well, within the culture, annihilation actually meant something very similar than what what it means today. So today, I say I have a a 10-year-old little boy that just loves soccer. He lives for soccer. Now, he loves Jesus too, thankfully. But, he, you know, I'm, I'm trying to like show him live for Jesus, soccer second, but that's a war every day. So, when he goes and plays a game against other little 10-year-olds, and I come home and my wife says, How, how'd the game go? He goes, I annihilated him! And we laugh and we think that's cute and we think it's funny and things like that. But what if I wrote that history book and somebody opened it 3,000 years later? And it says, I'm teaching my 10-year-old son who went to the game and annihilated. Well, did he really? Did he take out a sword out of dad's truck and go chop their heads off after the soccer game? Walk around with bloody heads holding them by the hair and, you know, I am Reed! Do we get that picture? It's figurative language. It's very similar to the way I started this out. Did anybody really think that Steve Castle was going to put him on a jet and fly him for free someplace? Well, he might to Honduras. I don't know. I mean, that could happen. But you all knew it was figurative language. In the Jewish mindset, the meanings are actually more important than the words. This is really tough in translating the Bible because a good Bible translation, and I'll just say the NIV is a good Bible translation, the NASB is a little bit better, the KJV needs some work, but anyway, you get this. And the problem is, the good problem is that everything is translated literally. And the reason they do that is because they don't want the translators to actually be commentators on what the Word of God says. No translator in history is going to take on that responsibility. There isn't one out there. So what they do is they give us the literal meaning, but they say, you need to 
interpret hermeneutically, exegesically, means reading the text and finding what it says, You need to go to church. God designed it this way so that one that has poured his life into the understanding of the Scripture might give life filtered by the Holy Spirit that all of us might understand with the power of this. It's the same way of thinking that each one of us has a a gift to bring to the table. Bob and Steve's gift to bring to the table are that they've spent their life in the Scripture understanding that. So when Pastor Steve last week came and told these amazing background stories to what we're reading, we are enlightened to understand the history of God based on languages that we have no concept of. Pretty cool, huh? Now, other people, you can do that with Scripture. Every single person in this room can get to that place with the Word of God, but God actually might be prodding you differently. He might be. You might be going to a job for 40 hours a week that you thought I was making fun of an hour ago that I'm actually saying, go and do that to your heart's desire and worship God with everything that you have inside of you, your heart, your mind and soul, 110% to its full potential in the place that God has put you. That's pretty powerful. Now when you do that, You need to stay in tune with the Spirit and with the Scripture or you will be off course. So now, even though we're all called to hear, hear, and hear, and hear, we're all called to get into the Scripture. It says that over and over and over. Somehow, God is the definition and the very meaning in our dominion in our world of both complete love and complete justice. Some people have a problem with that. How can the God of love also be a God of justice? How can a God of love that might decide that it's time for life to be done with all these people also be the same God that's welcoming All of these people into covenant living with Him. Now, I'm a firm believer that that offer is open to everyone for all of this lifetime and possibly the next. I might get to that. I might not. You've heard it said that that sometimes... God has offerings to him that we can't necessarily understand in our humanity. Did you know that almost all the offerings in the Old Testament were given because God said that that was the way that he wanted to communicate with his people? Make up an offering of yourself, the best that you have, first fruits thinking, give it to me, and that is going to reconcile you for things that you can't even understand. Kind of sounds like the mediator that we get in the New Testament, right? So in the Old Testament, they would go to war. This is really interesting with the story Steve shared last week. And I wasn't even going to share about this till I heard his message and thought, oh, this fits so well. He shared with you this story about the circumcision, how, how they go and they circumcise and then they kill them. Why why circumcise them if you're going to kill them? 
Well, in the Old Testament, circumcision is a sign of the heart. God comes to his people. Remember the story, the crazy story of Abraham with circumcision. He says, as crazy as this sounds, I want you to be the father of nations. And the outward sign that you're going to be within this covenant relationship is circumcision. And guys, guys go, Abraham's going, oh God, isn't there any other way you can do this? But it also means something because how was Abraham going to do that? He was going to father the nation. There's a whole study on circumcision there I shared with Bob one time. And it's pretty awesome that God does it this way. So have you ever thought about this? At the end of every battle, the Israelites made a burnt offering, altar sacrifice. What's crazy is the sacrifice wasn't necessarily for those that fell in their army. It was for those that fell in the other army. Wow. That whole thing about loving your enemy. Why do they circumcise them? This was like crazy evangelism. They were circumcising them because they thought in their cultural setting that if God says obedience in life is going to be given through your covenant with me, and circumcision was the outward sign, maybe if we get them circumcised, there's a chance that they might be with us in eternity. And then they killed them. Sounds barbaric, but actually in their cultural understanding, this is hard for us to get. If you read all these stories of the world and that culture, the actual lifespan of an adult male was 24 years old. 24 years old. If you lived more than that, you were, you were called a god. Did you know that? If you made it to old age, you were called a god because that's the only way in that culture that you could ever live more than 24, 25 years old is if the gods were with you. And so, the way that they were slain actually in the Old Testament was kingdom thinking, as hard as that is. Now, what's interesting is when we read that story, God never necessarily is like, oh, you guys did exactly what I wanted you to do. I think a lot of times the disciples were confused and Israel was a little confused sometimes too. There's stories that we read and we go, was that God wanting this or was that just what people did thinking that they might be honoring God, although most of these stories in Israel, were they honoring the God at all? The great majority of these stories we have were actually God's people acting against what God wanted. And if you don't get that in the story, you're missing something in the Old Testament. I'm just going to touch on this for a second. One of the problems that people have is with hell in Christianity. Now, I'm not going to lighten the story here. I've listened to plenty of your podcasts to know that you guys never get the watered-down story in this room. But as I'm talking about the difficult things of the Scripture that you have to come to terms with, quite frankly, hell is one that you have to come to terms with. And one of the things you hear all the time is, why is it 
And how is it that this God of love, grace, and mercy that sent His Son the ultimate sacrifice on the cross could send people to a place like hell? Everybody's heard that, right? Now, within Scripture, you've heard it reconciled many, many different ways. You've heard people say, well, you know, there's... God's wrath, God's judgment, this and this and this. There's, there's ways to explain how God might be just and send people into everlasting torment. And it is biblical. Now, what I'm going to tell you here is that most people have grown up in the church believing a view of hell called eternal conscious torment. And that view essentially says that God is going to take anyone that has not made the decision to follow Him, and that if if they haven't given their allegiant grace, made a statement of faith, that in not doing so, they're going to end up in eternal hell, fire and brimstone, in a conscious state, and they're going to be tormented there forever. Now, most people simply believe that that's, exactly what the Bible teaches. And that's the, the doctrine is eternal conscious torment. It does have a little bit of a Reformed or Calvinistic mindset associated with it. Um, I don't know if you guys understand those words, but I'll just kind of leave that there. But what I'm going to tell you is that I want you to go out and think about what I'm going to present here. I'm not going to tell you the way. You guys are going to have to figure this out for yourself. The Bible is very clear that we all need to work this out for ourselves. So when you're sitting in here, I'm going to tell you that if you've got a problem with the nature of God sending people to hell, there's actually different framework within the pages of the Bible. Now, this isn't the kind of framework everybody's worried here. Everybody's like on the edge of their seat going, who is this guy right now? I'm going to preface this by saying, I teach at one of the most conservative seminaries in the entire world. Um, Everything we do is based on sola scriptura. If it's not in the pages of the Bible, we're not having that. And I hate to say it, but most theology is a construct of man's imagination. Now, with that being said, it's unfortunate Sometimes that the people have taken one small doctrine of hell and framed it on all of Christianity and God. This might surprise some of you guys, and I could speak for a long time on just this. And my on my YouTube channel, there's about 225 videos, and a lot of them touch on this. If you want more, you can go there. Um, There's one view that I presented, and unfortunately, everybody really thinks that this is the only view in the Bible of eternal conscious torment. Now, I'm going to start by saying it may be, it may be reality. It might be right, as Pastor Steve said. It might be. The scripture actually isn't clear if that's what hell is or isn't. And so, if it is, there is framework to understand a just God that would do that. Now, with that being said, I personally don't take that view. You guys need to go get your own view. You need to figure it out. 
My, my hang up with it is how can a God that says the biggest evil that we've ever experienced in this world is burning these children alive in conscious torment, turn around and say, that's my plan. Doesn't quite make sense. Now, sometimes it does make sense saying those people that decided they were going to do that, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, if you are going to do this, then guess what's coming to you? So you can reconcile this both ways. Do you guys see the conundrum that we're in? Well, the other problem we have is we always frame the most evil person ever as Hitler, right? Adolf Hitler, the guy that's going to kill How many millions of Jews? We don't even know the number. We don't. So we're going to say that Adolf Hitler is going to be the worst monster ever because he's going to ship up the Jews, God's people. He's going to put them in gas chambers and he's going to kill them in what would probably take a few seconds. Yet now we're going to say that God's nature is going to be okay with putting people in Everlasting torment situation over and over, forever and ever and ever and ever. All of a sudden, which one kind of sounds worse? Well, there are ways to reconcile this, but I'm not going to give them to you today. There's more views on this. The other view is called annihilation. It sounds really bad, but it's actually the word that the Old Testament uses over and over and over. And so the term of annihilation means at some point, you're going to be judged for what happens on this earth. Now, what some people never think about is that's called kind of the great judgment, or we we also word it, although correct or incorrect, as the final judgment But what if there's still another judgment after that? What if there's still a chance for people to come? What if hell was created so that would happen? Now, you're saying, I've never heard of this before. I I get that. It's going to take a a second. So just be open to this thinking. In the Old Testament, we we get this picture of a place called Sheol. In the New Testament, it's referred to as Hades. It's likely the same place, but we don't know that for sure. In the story where it's called Hades, it's also referred to as Abraham's bosom. We have a river. It's the same place. Over here is one. Over here is the other one. And they're kind of in this holding place. Now, what does Jesus do on the cross when he dies and he's gone for three days? Some people have a problem with the Apostles' Creed because it says he descends into hell. Is that in the Bible? It actually is in the Bible. It's in Second Peter. But a lot of people still have a problem with it. There's a whole bunch of extra-biblical sources, such as the book of Enoch, I don't have time to get into that today, that would also affirm that Jesus was doing something during these three days. Now, what is he doing? All we know is after these three days, guess what happens? The spiritual entities are bound. There There is a spiritual battle that takes place in those three days that we don't have the book or the movie for. It's not given to us. All we know is that in our movie, we get a glimmer of what's going on in this other saga. I loved it when Rogue One came out because it explained a whole bunch of stuff that didn't seem to make sense in Star Wars. 
I can't wait till we get that book on the three days that God overcame an entire, an entire legion of fallen spiritual forces. Wow. The cross runs backwards and it runs forwards. What happens on the cross covered those that were in a waiting place and maybe those that were slain by God, it seems like, might have been gotten another chance to be preached to in that place to be given salvation. Wow. Is God's gift of reconciliation surpassing to our lifetime? It's a big question. Unfortunately, we don't have all the cards to answer that one. But we get glimmers. We get hints. So we have this concept called annihilation. And some people believe in the torment of hell within this thinking that when somebody gets to the great judgment to come, that they'll die. Now, we always say, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven right now. If I die right now, am I going to be standing in heaven in a second? It seems that way according to Scripture. But it doesn't seem that way to those that fall that are not with God. So if you fall and you're not with God, it seems like you're going into some kind of sleep state or resting place until the judgment day comes. Now, isn't it interesting that you're not just cast into hell right away? If I die, I go to hell right away. I go to hell. In my humanly thinking, I think, wouldn't that make more sense? But there's a reason it doesn't happen that way. And part of the mystery of the gospel is to scratch my head and go, there's something going on here. So the annihilation camp would tell you that upon the judgment, they're found not worthy to enter into the place and they're cast into hell. Now, whether that's eternal torment or not, because that one's out there within the annihilation camp, they're still given a chance to possibly come to Jesus or just be completely annihilated. Now, in the Bible, this is called the second death. If you don't believe in a final death state, it's hard to figure out what to do with this second death thing. That's hard to frame in eternal conscious torment. There's not a place to put it. And so you need to reconcile. And if you're in the annihilation camp, you just say that at some point, maybe each person like Hitler is going to spend more time in hell than somebody else. But eventually everybody is just going to be in a final state of death, cease to exist. That's what we call annihilated. But then we have this problem. Are you guys theologically following? Well, didn't you just say a half hour ago that in the Old Testament, annihilated didn't often mean annihilated. It meant sent to the next life. So now we got a problem here. So we got eternal conscious torment, which I'm saying we can figure out, but you might have to figure out some problems with it. Now we've got annihilation that seems to actually make the most sense if you're just going through Scripture. But then we've got a couple issues with some wording in there. Now the third view is the one that I would really like to believe more than anything else. And um, you're going to want to stone me when I tell you the word. Now it's crazy that most people have never really gotten these views of hell before. They just go with ECT, but this is an evangelical. If you believe this view, it means you believe in the 
Father, the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, that Jesus came down as a man, died on the cross, paid for the sins of all of humanity that anybody who wanted to accept may freely get that gift and live in eternal life. But it's called universal, that's the word you don't like, I don't like it either, reconciliation. Now, it's not to be confused with universalism. We want to call it pluralism. That means all gods go to one. You know, worship Buddha, worship this one. They're all going to go to the same afterlife. That is not universal reconciliation. I just want to make sure we're all clear there. Pastor Steve had this guy who started preaching universalism. That's not what we're doing. I want to believe in universal reconciliation. What it means is that God is a big enough God that He not only wants everybody to come to Him, but He actually figures out a way for everybody to come to Him. I love that. I just don't know how that works. (laughs) It's the least... It's, it's the hardest one to frame scripturally with the immediacy of needing to make a decision for Christ. It's the hardest one to frame with all these things of, you know, burning and torment and stuff like that. Now, it can exist. So, it's actually very similar to that annihilationist view that some people take. Most annihilationists just believe that you're going to die. That if you get to the second death, that means you're just done. But the problem with that is then everybody gets the same death. Nobody pays for how evil they were. I'm actually okay with that. But it doesn't sound as just as Hitler having to spend more time in torment than, you know, a girl that might have never known God. And so there's this idea that within universal reconciliation... Every knee will bow. That verse is hard to put on the other two versions of hell. So now you have this concept that even though I can't understand this passage or this passage, I can understand those. I can frame that. And you can too if you spend enough time studying. All of these views are good views. They all make sense. But universal reconciliation is the one that I really hope is true because somehow after people die, they go to a holding place, they go to the great judgment, then they probably experience some kind of hell in which they are very similarly to the Old Testament version of Hades and Sheol given a chance to come to Jesus again. Does it ever say in our Bible, in your Bible, that your chances get used up. We kind of have that thought that the great judgment is the final moment, but maybe it's not. Maybe God's grace is actually that big. It's out of our human comprehension. You see what I'm saying? Like, There's just part of this that I go, I just cannot wrap my head around how this works. But all three of those views are actually very solidly maintained by the first church fathers when Jesus was there and within theology today. 
And if you really get to an unbiased perspective, they all are about equal. I have the hardest time with eternal conscious torment because that doesn't seem to reconcile with the view of God that says the biggest evil I've ever seen is the conscious torment of these babies. That's the one I struggle with. The other two I'm pretty okay with. Now, there's a fourth, and this one's not a very common view, but if you ever heard of an Orthodox church, you go, what does that mean? Well, the Orthodox church is just one of the very first churches that started. It actually predates the Roman Catholic Church. And their idea, and most of this comes from those that were right after the time of Christ, get their picture of this idea of Abraham's bosom on one side of the river and the other. And instead of just saying that's a waiting place of the Old Testament, they're saying the New Testament picture actually looks very similar. So hell in of itself, this is a little abstract, but again, it can be found in Scripture. I just personally, I think it's the weakest view, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Um, the idea of it is that when you... When you get to this place called hell, God is going to be there in both places. In the same way that Jesus went back to hell, God in His, in His presence to be in all places will also be in this space. And either you're going to react to the God that you love and experience the, the everlasting joy that you always dreamed of, or you're going to react to the God that you've learned to hate and you're going to be in eternal anguish forever and ever. That's the orthodox view. It's not a very common view, and I, I bet even our pastors may not have heard this view before. It's, it's a small view on heaven, but there are actually quite a few scripture verses that make you sit back and go, hmm, interesting. One of them is what I've said many times throughout this sermon. Jesus is the Word. If Jesus is the Word, and the Word is not only the Scripture, but the Word is literally the way of not only life in this dominion, but also the next, then it means that God essentially is eternal life. And that's the way orthodox views frame hell. So, what the reason I shared this with you is because today we're talking about difficult subjects of Christianity. I love it that you're all here, but some of you, if your neighbors ask, how do you frame a God who, you know, puts up with all the evil atrocities of the world, you might not have the answer for that. How does your neighbor who can't reconcile the idea that their kids are, that the churches of America are telling them that their kids are in hell right now, how is that person going to love the God that put them in hell? These are tough questions of the Christian faith. And they have good, solid answers within the framework of the Bible. The Bible, the scripture that we've been given, it is enough. I love extra-biblical sources. I think the book of Enoch is one of the most fascinating books ever written. But it ain't the Bible. Yeah. I started off this conversation today talking about walking with Him. One of the, one of the 
issues that I have is that our primary directive is to be one with the Word. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The light is within us. We are made in the exact image of God. Thank you last week, Pastor Steve. Our primary role is to carry the Word. Does that make sense? That is what we were designed for from the beginning to the end was to carry the Word. What do I look like in the image of God? Is that a good image or is that an image of the world? When I think of allegiance, I think that I cannot be allegiant to a a place that looks like a religion that is not of God. If I have to pick right or left, I'm going with God all day long. There's a lot I like about America and our government, but with the baby killing that's going on and all the rest of the murky stuff, I don't want to be here when our nation hits 400 years. Do you know what I'm saying? Wow. Let that sink in for a second. At 400 years, I want it to be clear that I'm on God's side and I'm not on the side of all of these evil atrocities that some people cannot reconcile with the God of love. Because that's not my God. My God is a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of unending grace, who is the way maker. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for being present in us. for settling our spirits and reconciling us with a God of love, with a God of intentionality, with a God that never stops pursuing us. Lord, You are not only enough, You are everything. Lord, let us be found faithful, obedient, and allegiant to your kingdom and to you as our sovereign Lord and King, that you might orchestrate every little part of our life, of our mind, our spirit, and our soul. Lord, to you be the glory forever and ever. Amen. so much for sharing a few moments with us as we have encountered Jesus Christ through the ministry of his precious life-changing word. If you'd like to learn more about the ministry of Pastor Steve Castle and Beloved Church, please visit us online at BelovedChurchIllinois.com or call us at 815-990-0367. Always remember that you are part of the Beloved Family of God and at Beloved Church, this is where you are greatly loved. Now please open your heart as Pastor Steve proclaims the blessing of the Father over your life. Beloved, I pray, I desire, I declare that above all things that you allow the finished work of the cross to bring prosperity into your finances and also divine health prospering your body. 
And all of these things are going to affect you in a supernatural way as you allow your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions, and your personality to be perfected in prosperity that the Father desires for you to have. We love you, and we cannot wait to see and be with you again soon. Goodbye, beloved. Speak life.